from the beginning of time, it's been oppression, revolution, freedom, oppression, revolution, freedom. And I think the cycle that's happened since the beginning of time is about to be broken. I think the battle that we're facing right now is for the battle of humanity. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks. There are just too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with Casa's multi-sig wallet, you can take custody of Bitcoin, but only move by signing transactions from multiple wallets. Ones that you get to distribute into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, you can reach out to me over email or drop me a DM on Twitter. I've been a customer for over a year and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now the football season started, it's been a strange start to the season. Tottenham started well, but obviously they fell apart. Typical Tottenham stuff, and Liverpool are crushing it. But it's a bit tied up there. Other teams are doing very well. Now listen, with Sportsbet, you've got everything covered. Not only do they cover football, but they support tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even have esports. And for new customers, there is always a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, then please head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T. Io. Next up, we have Extras Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, UX is super important to me. So when the Extras team reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app. And you know what? They crushed it. The experience is amazing, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends and my family. Now, the Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Mark. Yes, sir. Thank you for coming and doing this, man. appreciate this. This is long fucking overdue. It is long overdue. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it. And uh, I think this is a good follow-up to my show with Quittam yesterday. We did. We revisited the fourth turning. Yeah. Covered a lot of stuff. And when we were planning this show, we realized like there's like some similarities. But obviously, as you said, previous to recording, it's like a small part of this whole thing you've been working on. So my, my starting question for you is like, I've seen your presentation mm-hmm. talking about these cycles. Is this built on other work or is this all your own work no of course it's all built on other work right i mean uh i've never seen anybody put the three cycles together so i would say that's my own work but um i'm referencing a lot of different people's work i think uh at at this point in today's age right we're all building off the shoulders of other people um so it's all work that i've done i just haven't ever seen anybody pull something in from the financial side the technological side the political side and like bring it all together so i would say that part i think is my own work and realizing it's all converging. And realizing it all converging, yeah. Right. Okay. I think I don't normally do this anymore, but I uh, I think before we get into it, I, I think I want a bit of a backstory. Uh, I want to know, like, is this like a recent thing for you? Have you always been like a rebel thinking about these kind of ideas? I don't know your backstory, Mark. Yeah. So, um, shoot, how far do we go back? I would say um, I kind of 
I guess I'm just a free thinker. I was kind of raised maybe a little bit different. Um, when I was growing up, uh, my dad was a contractor, so kind of entrepreneur. Um, I was actually homeschooled for a few years when I was a kid, which wasn't a thing at that time. Um, and I think those things, my parents were kind of very grassroots political, um, act, you know, pretty active there. Um, politics is still something that's discussed at our table on a regular basis. So I think all those things kind of led me to kind of see the world differently. I graduated high school and I, 18 years old, I bought a house, uh, fixed it up, flipped it, made 30 grand and I was off to the races and I've been a full-time investor, entrepreneur, business guy my whole life. Um, the thought of getting a job has never really crossed my mind. So I just, uh, I've just, so I, I think, I think a little bit differently, I guess. Um, the one subject I did like in school was history mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm still, I still love history. So I think it's just always been something I've been fascinated on. I love going and seeing, you know, um, pyramids or any type of history that I can see. So I've always loved that, I guess. Um, I, uh, I was really good at making money. I made a lot of money. And in 2008, I got wiped out and that sucked really bad. And I had to kind of figure that out all, all over again. Totally wiped out? Yeah, totally wiped out. So I uh, bought, bought my first piece of real estate at 18 in 1995. I made 30 grand off that first deal, rolled it in the next one. And by, nine, by 2005, I was sitting about $20 million in real estate. And um, I had built two different businesses. I, I started a high-tech business. I started an internet business, a, an e-commerce business in 2001 at the bottom of the dot-com crash. Damn. I was selling motocross parts online. And at the time, I was the only dot-com in the magazine. Everything else was still mail order at the time. And uh, it wasn't easy to build a website. There was no Shopify, no nothing. And I went to these companies. I said, hey, I built this website. I want to sell your products. And they said, uh, ha ha, that's a joke. No one's going to buy anything online. That's ridiculous. I said, well, I begged to differ and I spent all this money and let me just buy your products and give you my money. And they said, we don't even want our products sold on your website. All right, whatever. I'll just find other people, whatever. So um, built that up, had a, had a Fortune 500 exit on that business. And so that was kind of the, my first dip into the internet world. So I've been involved in the internet uh, for a long time and I still am today. Um, I had a, a high-tech medical equipment business that I sold off. Uh, the problem is, is I took all of that money and put it all into Southern California real estate. And um, being a student of history, I looked and I said, the, we had only had one real depression in California real estate history. It dropped 30% over four years. The, the worst 12 month drop was 6%. Okay, what if it drops double that, 12%? What if it's triple that, 18, triple the worst in history, 18%? Yeah, I'm still good. I got 30, 40% equity, no big deal. It dropped 60% in 12 months, 60 and I wasn't prepared for that. I mean, uh-huh. no, nobody was. And uh, I just couldn't carry the properties. And so I went from having $20, $25 million in real estate to owing millions of dollars really quickly. And uh, I had just gotten married, just had my first kid, just built this sick custom house, six-car garage, elevator, ocean view. I was done. Like, I was tapped out. And uh, then I went to the poorhouse. So that sucked. And it made me realize, like, dang, I'm pretty good at making money but what is this financial casino that I don't know anything about? And uh, I grew up uh, racing dirt bikes and surfing big waves. I still do. And uh, I've got metal in all four of my limbs. I've broken pretty much every, every bone in my body. And so I'm used to just dust myself off and let me just figure this out again. I'll go hit that jump again. No big deal. And so um, a lot of my friends got wiped out, never got back. I said, I'm going to go figure this thing out. And I vowed to myself and my family, like, this will never happen again never going to happen again. I'm going to figure this out. And so I've spent the last 12, 13 years studying the financial system and figuring out what the heck's going on. Um, I became a gold bug. 
I figured that uh, sound money was the key. Uh Uh, The problem was the fiat money system and I became a gold bug. Um, And then about, you know, 2013, I think I started kind of looking at Bitcoin a little bit. And um, it was actually maybe 2011, I think when it was running up, got up to like a thousand, then it crashed, I think in like 2012. And then there was the election cycle here. And again, growing up kind of political, um, paying attention to that a lot. And I just got so over the whole system. I was like checked out. I told my wife, I'm like, we're not connected enough to make it. I don't want to be a freedom fighter. I'm a strong Second Amendment supporter and I got a bunch of guns, but I don't ever want to shoot one. My grandfather was a uh, World War II veteran, decorated. My father was a Vietnam Air Force pilot in Vietnam. I grew up thinking I would go to war as well, but I realized I didn't want to. Like, I'll just, I'm a surfer. I'll be in Nicaragua on a hammock fishing and surfing. I'm checked out, right? Um, But then uh, I started looking at Bitcoin. It kind of came up, it crashed. I was uh, really studying, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Sovereign Man, Simon Black. Um, He talks about, you know, being a sovereign man, having multiple flags, flag theory, Mm -hmm. you know, bank accounts in multiple, like you wouldn't have all your money in one stock. Why would you have all your life in one country? Makes sense. So I was actually working on setting up a bank account in uh, Panama so I could work on a residency and a passport and all that. This is in 2015. I had a appointment with an attorney to do all this. And I took another look at Bitcoin and I said, wait a minute, this is the same thing. I get my money out of the banking system. Perfect. Put my money into Bitcoin. Of course, once you put a little bit of skin in the game, you start paying attention. And uh-huh. I said, wait a minute, this is, this is the tool. This is how we win. We finally, I don't need to go to Nicaragua. I can like, we can do something. And so I said, I got to tell the whole world about it. And I've, I've basically been banging the table on it ever since. Yes, man. Um, and so anyway, I guess uh, that's, the, that's the short version of, of, of me and how I got here. Um, but yeah, I've always just had this kind of uh, thing about history. And so um, in all of my videos that I do, I try to pull in like this historical element um, because I believe that history tells us how we got here. It tells us what's going on. And even more importantly, if you study it right, it can tell you where we're going. And so being like this macro, kind of having this macro view, um, it's kind of like um, if you watch the movie where they go back in, in, the, back in time, oh, don't touch anything because that could have a massive change in the future. Butterfly effect. Butterfly effect. And so um, you can start to, when you study history, you can see how these one little things created these massive movements. And then you can start to see how these little things that are happening today, where that will lead to. Well, I mean, I've read Where Money Dies. I've read about the Weimar Republic and we know where that led. And you can't, I mean, you can't say whether World War II would or wouldn't have happened the way it did. But I mean, it started with breakdown of the money in Germany. Well, I think you can because well, it's yes. not just the money, though. And that, I think that's the piece that this my thesis on these three revolutionary cycles is that when you're looking at finance, when you're looking at anything, you're looking for indicators, right? So like uh, the when money dies, yeah. you're looking at the financial system and looking at indicators. They're printing a bunch of money, obviously. Um, and so that's an indicator. Like if you print a bunch of fiat money, you're probably going to have that. But the problem is with indicators is that um, – there's never one indicator that's all conclusive. You're not going to trade off one indicator, right? You're going to look at a bunch of indicators. And so a lot of people are looking at a bunch of financial indicators, but what about the technology side? Or what about the, the political side? And so I think the political side is the bigger one. And so if you look at the history of these revolutions that have been repeating since the beginning of time, you could have kind of told what happened in Germany. Yes. I'm just not sure... I'm just not sure it would have played out exactly as it did. Or maybe we're back on the same path again. Which is 
it's scary to think about because you know mark everything's a bit fucking crazy and weird right now um, it's very scary and weird very scary and weird it's scary but it's not weird it's actually normal it's normal if you've read up on history right. yeah of course yeah but it's scary and weird and, and what's weird is i think uh on a personal level you know live for close to 40 years in relative stability yeah yeah relative financial stability relative stable world i know there's been like wars and some shit but relative stability my assumption was that's just how life is yeah you know world wars are a thing of the past collapsing economies you know i've never thought the uk economy could ever face a collapse like that. Uh, but now we are seeing the signs we're seeing collapse uh collapsing currency in lebanon okay well that's not venezuela but it's but now we're seeing Turkey. We're like, oh, hold on, Turkey's yeah. a G20 nation, and we're seeing protests all around the world. And I know with your work, the protests were starting even before COVID, anyway. Yeah, uh, everything's getting a bit weird, and I'm getting to that point where I'm like mildly scared of where the world's going, especially with kids. Yeah, I am scared. I'm I'm worried about what a collapse, a global collapse, or a collapse of a massive Western nation will mean. It, it does worry me, Mark. It it should worry you. It worries me too. I think uh, I told you before we were recording, I just bought a ranch. Yep. And um, I think the probability, I think in, I th- a lot of people today, they don't think, they don't have that elastic thinking, right? Everyone, and you, I know you see it, you battle it online all the time, right? Everyone's mm-hmm. so rigid in their thinking. Yep. Um, but I like to think in things in terms of probabilities. And so the probability of me having to go live on that ranch and be a prepper and live off the land is, is low. But I think when I make decisions, like what's the worst that might happen? And if that happens, am I okay with it? So um, it's a low probability, but if I, if it does happen and I'm not prepared and I have a family, it's catastrophic. I'm not okay with that. So I've, I've, I've made, I've made uh, some actions based off of that. Cause I'm scared too. I mean, it's, it's not good. Yeah. I've got, so I started prepping in a different way. I mean, yeah, the UK isn't like the US. We don't have somewhere like Texas we can go. You're in the same position wherever you are in the country. And yeah. you know, we don't have first and second round amendment. We're not in a particularly great position. Should we see some catastrophic collapse? Should we see some form of catastrophic war? Which I, I think everything is on the table right now. And I don't say this, uh, I don't say this just just to be hyperbolic. I actually think we're at, significant risk right now i mean you've covered in your work the debt burden globally yeah so i am starting to think of prepping a different way i spoke to katie the russian about getting another passport i'm like thinking if i need to get into the u.s can i get into the u.s the u.s feels like somewhere safer to be than the uk i mean we've got a small army and and we've got no uh amendment so i am thinking about these things yeah but i'm also like trying to say am i just being a bit weird here like is everything going to be okay and i'm just not sure I, I, uh, I'm a little bit of the opposite where I, uh, as an entrepreneur, I'm a permanent optimist. Okay. Right. You have to be as an entrepreneur, otherwise you never do anything. So I'm always an optimist and I'm checking, uh, as humans, we're horrible investors because of our emotions. So earlier you were talking about, uh, everything's for 40 years. It's been kind of like this way. I thought it would always be that way. So that's normalcy bias, right? So yep. that's yep. one problem we have. Um, I have this op, I'm always optimistic and I think that it's going to be okay but all the research tells me otherwise. And I keep thinking like, it's going to be okay, but it's not what the data says. And so, um, I, I'm trying to check my own bias of, of optimism when the reality is it's showing me something different. 
Like the storm's coming. Ah, oh, it's probably going to turn and miss the house. It's, it's probably going to miss, right? And it usually does. But you can be a prepared optimist. You can be a prepared optimist. You, you should be. be. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I want to be an optimist. And I, I sometimes think, hold on, is it just the cohort that I, I'm in? Is it this cohort? You and I, yeah. our friends. And, yeah, the echo you know, chamber. Yeah, the, the echo. Yeah. I'm reticent to use echo chamber on this point because what I'm thinking is that we're all seeing some signals and signs and we're discussing it and we're trying to understand what it means. And, and let, I, me, let me tell you this. Yeah. So I went to Austin a couple of weeks ago to meet up with a, a few different uh, content creators, influencers from different niches to talk about you know, the state of uh, creating content in this environment and what we're going to do about it. They had some uh, special forces people there. And the special forces guys got up and talked to us. And they said, look, our whole career has been being deployed to other countries and destabilizing countries. That's what we do. And we're telling you right now that the exact same playbook that we use to overthrow countries is the exact 100% same playbook that's happening in the United States right now. And we can tell you where this goes because this is what we do. And I left that meeting and I went and bought a ranch. And I'm a pretty level-headed guy. So the exact same playbook, is this an internal playbook? Is it being destabilized internally or is this external forces? Um, internally, yeah, internally, you know. It's a color revolutions, right? So it's a, if you look at a color, what a color, color revolution is, I mean, the key, key aspects would be one, um, create uh, internal um, you know, protests and things like that. And then two, the other big piece of the color revolution is to create um, doubt about the election. Every country that's been had that, that's what they do. They want to they create something that makes the election look illegitimate because they want you to doubt that. So those are the two big pillars of that. Um, but who wants this? Well, I mean, that's not in my research. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, I'm just saying these are special forces guys. This is what they said. I didn't go to Austin looking for a ranch. I went there as a business meeting. And afterwards, I'm like, dang. Excuse me, because the reason I ask is um, I'm wondering if it is external because I was listening to a podcast recently talking about technology, talking about the strong control that, say, China, Russia has over technology uh, internally and how they can also use bot farms to influence people in the U.S. Yeah. And the, the, this, that came out something like 14 of the 15 biggest uh, uh, Christian Facebook groups were, were actually bot farms, which were disseminating disinformation. Hmm. I think this is way bigger than China and Russia. Okay. This is like the GPCC, right? This is, uh, this, this is what we're seeing, and this is what my research shows, is it's centralization. We're at a level we've never seen. It's globalization. Okay. And so it's uh, above the WEF, right? So the WF and the BIS are basically at the top of the heap, and then they kind of use the local governments and then the police. I don't know if you've seen that like kind of pyramid that's been kind of going around on social media lately, but it kind of shows. So this is, a, I think it's bigger than China. It's bigger than Russia. This is a globalist movement. And, and is this, uh, do you, is your belief there's like some coordinated action or this is just the result of a whole number of different factors converging at the same time 
Yeah, I think um, like the, is it organic in I, some ways? I think it's somewhat organic. I think it's um, the way that I um, would say is like um, if you looked at a flock of birds flying together, mm-hmm. they didn't sit down and okay, Larry, you're going to be over there, and Joe, you're over there, and we're all no. They just they fly together and they they move and they feed off of each other. And I think it's probably more like that. I think um, I think there is some coordination up at the top, obviously with you know Klaus Schwab and his buddies, and obviously they're doing some stuff. But I think uh, most other people are just kind of moving and reacting with that. As opposed to, I don't think there's, I don't think the Rothschilds have been able to dream this master plan up for 500 years. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to your work. Um, a lot of people think that the big protests we're seeing now, a lot of protests globally, uh, mostly related to COVID. Uh, we've got them in the UK. They're in Australia. They're here in the US. They're in most countries in the world right now. Yep. Uh, down to small islands in the Caribbean. Yep. I think I saw, I can't remember where I saw one recently. It was Bermuda or Barbados. Uh, but in your work, you were researching that there, and you identified that the protests were starting way before COVID. Way before. And I remember there were protests in Iraq. I remember there were massive protests in France. I went to Chile when the protests were in Santiago, uh, and the protests there were mainly to do with the growing wealth divide and the corruption within government there. Um, can you talk to me about that? Like your research, yeah. what you found? You had the yellow jackets in France. Yep. You had obviously Hong Kong, which I know you covered quite a bit. Yep. Um, Lebanon, Argentina, Chile. There was 10 countries with over a million people each that were protesting pre-COVID. Hong Kong was escalating rapidly. And then overnight it was gone. They lost they didn't lose. All the protests went away. How does 10 countries with a million people each protesting go to zero instantly and nobody's protesting anymore? Okay, I think I know where you're going with this. Well, I'm not insinuating anything. It just, it, you know, COVID happened and everyone got locked down and there was no more protesting. I thought, hmm, I, th- I thought it kind of, because they got to the point where the protests were ending and then they were... You were covering that Hong Kong quite a bit, I remember. Not, I mean, it didn't just end. Hmm. I need to look into that. I need to like... Fact check it. Yeah, Danny. 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 <laughs> uh, uh, that's a tough thing to uh, fact check the detail of live. But um, they got to the point whereby they were actually starting to extradite people into mainland China, and for China from the Hong Kong courts. I remember that was kind of like the last thing I seem to remember. Uh, okay. Hmm. I mean, the thing about conspiracies is you can make them sound right. Yeah. But, I mean, but if you don't know, you just don't know. Well, I think, and I think, I think if you go back again and look at history, and so I think um, it makes things a lot clearer. So when you look at things right now, it's not clear. Like, what's going on? Why is this happening? Is this a conspiracy? Um, and there's all these questions because it's not clear because you don't have a long enough lens in, in Bitcoin where we say zoom out. Right. Yeah. So if you're looking at the chart like this, you don't get it. But when you zoom out, you look at a log chart, it looks way more clear. And so if we're just trying to take, if we're just trying to look at the events that are happening today and try to make sense of it, it doesn't make sense. And then we start having these questions. So when you zoom out and you see the whole picture, I think it just becomes more clear. So are you, are you saying you have a belief that the pandemic was manufactured no, I don't get into that. I, 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 don't, I don't see any reason to try to make a decision on that. It doesn't matter. It is what it is at this point. What I think it is is that um, we're in a cycle that, um, of centralization, of globalization, and we're at a point right now where the entire world is rejecting globalization. It's uh, Newton's uh, law of uh, 
of physics, right? Uh, equal force, or each force gets an equal and opposite reaction, right? And so the more they squeeze, the more people push back. And then the more power they lose, the more they try to squeeze on. And then the more people push back. And it's like this thing. And, and so it's, this, it's a cycle. And if we go back since the beginning of time, it cycles. And the reason why it cycles is because they're reactionary. Mm-hmm. It's like if we were bowling and we put the bumpers up and we put the ball and it just pings down, right? Hits one side back to the other. And so it's reactionary. And so we can see all throughout time that we have this, like the pendulum that swings back and forth from one extreme to the other. And so we're at peak we're approaching, I think 2023 is peak globalization, peak centralization, which is easy to see. And we're also reaching the peak of people pushing back against that, which is why, again, today we have millions of people all over the world marching and pushing back against that. Because it's fading. Because they don't want that. Yeah. The world doesn't want to be governed harder. And so the peak test of centralization is, can you lock down a nation of people? And then can you mandate something such as separating those who are vaccinated from those who aren't or cutting off the unvaccinated from society? Well, there's a couple, there's a couple pieces to that. So first off, the big problem that all nations are having right now is how do we stop uprising? How do we stop revolution? How do we keep that at bay? Because all the countries are having a big problem with that, obviously, as we're discussing that. Um, China right now has a massive problem on their hands. They had a one-child policy since 1980. Yep. They have hundreds of millions of boys with no girls. <laughs> That's not good. They have a failing economy. They have debt sky high. Their real estate is so high, no one can afford it. No one can start families. Um, what, do, what do 100 million boys 20 to 40 years old with no girls do? Fight. Get into a lot of trouble. And so they have all this problem. Now they're having an energy crisis and right? there's not enough energy. They can't afford real estate. There's no home. Like, so what do they do? They're, they're, how do we squash that? Right. But the whole world is doing that. And, and it's actually brings a great point because in my research, the whole world has been one cycle from another. The, from the beginning of time, it's been oppression, revolution, freedom, oppression, revolution, freedom. And I think the cycle that's happened since the beginning of time is about to be broken. I think the battle that we're facing right now is, for the battle of humanity. And I know that's a pretty big uh, claim, but I think it's the battle of humanity. And I think whichever way this um, happens, whatever way this unfolds, maybe breaks that cycle that's been happening from the beginning of time. And we either, we either go to a world of totalitarianism that we may never escape from, because as you said, with social distancing and with social media and AI and all those things, they could prevent any uprising from ever happening again. Or we win we defeat that globalization and they don't ever get that power again. Hmm. Can we, can we, and when I say we collectively, the people of the world, can we win and lose in different places? Like can, for example, can China win and suddenly they have an uprising and, and it's an end to the, aut- the autocratic leadership they have there. And can the U S lose and become more totalitarian and vice versa? Can the U S win and, they become more freak like or do you think this is just a global fight well it's definitely a global fight but i think um i think the what's easy to see the world's trending towards totalitarianism yeah anybody can see that and technology is giving them the tools they need to have that perfect you know totalitarianism or authoritarianism world and what breaks that trend you had mentioned earlier you're afraid there's a big war coming i i'm not i don't think there's a big war coming necessarily not a war of of guns and bullets anyway I think what breaks the trend of authoritarianism isn't war, it's competition. 
Nate, we, we've seen during the COVID lockdowns, California and New York both were trying to outcompete to be the most strict. Mm-hmm. And California and Texas outcompeted, I'm sorry, Florida and uh, Texas outcompeted them. Both governors found themselves on the chopping block. Yep. Outcompeted competition. Now we have El Salvador outcompeting. Right. And I think at El Salvador is going to say, hey, come move here, start up a business. We don't have any restrictions, no mandates, no taxes. People are going to go there. And when other nations see that, they're going to be like, well, us too. And people are going to go there. It's the, you know, it's the Atlas Shrug, Galt's Gulch, um, so to speak. And I think if enough people leave, then the nations are going to have to reconsider what they're doing. Now, um, this is nothing new. Growing up as a kid, I had plenty of friends that came from oppressive regimes. One of my best friends came from South Africa. When they came, they couldn't bring any, any money, no money, couldn't bring the real estate, couldn't carry their gold. They came penniless. Iran, whatever, all the same, Afghanistan. And so how much does it punish a country if you leave, but they keep all your wealth? But what if I can take my wealth with me? And that competition all of a sudden escalates. So I think that's what breaks the trend of authoritarianism in the long run. And so I think the whole world will be subject to that at some point. We, and we know this. This is, this is not speculation. So let me just – China under Mao became you know, complete communist, right? They fell behind the world stage. They couldn't compete. They couldn't compete. There was, there was communism. They had no creativity, no, right? And so in the 80s, they had to open it up, mm-hmm. opened up some free ports. Let's bring in a little bit of capitalism. Why? Because they were forced to because they couldn't compete on the global stage. Harder for people to leave China, though. It's harder for people to leave China, yeah. But we've been, you know, we've now, the United States, through their policies, have, have basically built China up, right? We've given them all our dollars, allowed them to grow. All your business, all your manufacturing. All your IP, you know, all of those things. China wouldn't be where they're at today if they hadn't been able to get all of that. In return, they've given all the mining back. Yeah, good job. I think, you know, uh, that goes to another thing, but it's just uh, under communism, I mean, this, this is probably going down a rabbit hole, but um, without freedom of speech, you have no way to discuss things properly. So you have no creativity. And without creativity, you can't solve problems. If we're all robots, so um, the United States is built on individualism and China is built on collectivism. And so in individualism, we're all different. And that's a good thing because you and I, we see different problems. Even if we look at the same problem, we see a different solutions. And we need that because we need as many people as possible solving as many problems as possible, as many solutions as possible. That's how you get creativity. That's how you get progression. When you have collectivism, like in China, and there's no freedom of speech, there's no creativity, everyone's a robot seeing the exact same thing, there's no progress. It'll never work. But do you not think the U.S. is sliding towards being collectivist? Certainly, one hundred percent is in blue states. Sure, one hundred percent it is. The whole world is, and I think that's. How, I don't. I don't like to look at fascism's on the right and socialism on the left and communism and capital. I, I hate all that. Mm-hmm. Republican, Democrat, left, right. I don't even know. I just look at it: individualism and collectivism, right? and that's the way that I look at it. And so, and, and we never, we've never really had a perfect one or the other. It's always, it's always a spectrum. It's always a blend, you know, more on one side than the other. Are you, are you somebody who believes in democracy and agrees with democracy? Like I always say, I'm a reluctant statist because I, I don't see a better answer than democracy that isn't just an untested theory. I, I don't, I don't think um, democracy is the way to go. Okay. Um, not, not in a country of 330 million people. 
Um, that's just mob rule, right? Um, it's mob rule, and I, I think. Well, um, at least at least at least here you have the option to vote with your feet as well. You can move state. Like that's something you have that we don't have in the UK, and I'm I'm yeah, infinitely the, jealous of it. Yeah, but the problem is, is that um, the United States was set up as a republic, not yeah. a democracy, and so each state was supposed to be independent. But now they've tried to make everything federal, right? And so I should be able to go from one state to another, but now everything's federal, so you don't really have that option anymore. I mean, you still, you still kind of do, and there's still state rights. Don't get me wrong. And again, it's a spectrum, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's going the other way. Um, but democracy is just mob rule. And if somebody, the state has just gotten too big. And so the state can take my money. And if people can vote themselves more of my money, they're always going to do that. And so in a democracy, the minority is always going to be oppressed by the majority. And so the poor majority is always going to steal from the, the rich minority, right? And so a republic, they're, you know, it's a representative government, so then they're protected under that system. Right. Let's, talk, let's, let's go through these cycles. Let's, yeah, let's, let's educate the people it. listening. There's uh, three specific cycles. Yeah. Uh, I've got the notes here from it. It's the political, social, uh, social and cultural revolutions. Yep. We have tech cycles and we also have – the where's the third one and the financial, financial cycles revolutions yeah. so let, let's talk through these because these are so fucking interesting man yeah okay so talk to me about political social and cultural yeah so that's where it starts right so the, each one pours into the next so solutions are supposed to come to problems and i say they're supposed to because today with central bank money printing we have money chasing problems that don't need to be solved but so you have like a you know, in culture and in, in politics, you have a problem and then technology will come along and solve that. And then technology drives financial markets. So they all kind of pour into each other. That's why they're all kind of connected. Um, when you look at the political, social, cultural cycles, um, kind of like we've already been talking about, it's reactionary. And so things get so bad one way, you have the other. Donald Trump comes along and he's so nationalist, right? He's, he's, he's wrapping himself in the American flag. Um, he's, um, pro-free markets, and then you come get Biden, who's the exact opposite, right? And so it's like, it's like one to the other. Yeah. Um, and so we can, look, we can look at these and we can trace them back through these cycles that happen. And there's uh, eight-year cycles, there's 28-year um, cycles, three times. And if you look at financial markets the same way, you typically see uh, like a, a, a bubble and a crash, a bigger bubble and crash, and then the third one is the big one, right? So the Dalio's short and long-term yeah, so but any, 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 yeah, long-term chart, you'll see that. And so um, 28, we have these 28-year cycles. Three of those equals 84. And then there's three 84-year cycles that equals 252. And that 252 is the big one. Okay. So I'll just talk with the 84. Hold on. Are we, uh, are we at the end of a 252? We're at the end of a 252. Damn. 250-year. So um, about every and, – and I think people expect that uh, history moves um, linear. But really, I mean – progress is exponential, right? We're changing. But at the same time, even though things are changing exponentially, there's cycles that just keep repeating in that. And that's because humans are the same and human nature is the same. So I would say, um, if we look, look at just a couple real quickly, so we have the 84, 80, 84 year cycle. So we'll start with that one first. Yep. I know you talked to Brandon Quidham yesterday. Yep. There's the fourth turning. So it's yep. an 80 year cycle. Um, and that's kind of like the four seasons, like summer, spring, winter, fall. And so, again, that's reactionary. So the, what's popular from the fourth turning is the, the, the bad times create strong men, yeah. strong men create good times. And that's reactionary, right? So because of that good time, it creates the weak men. And the weak men make the bad times. And so that's like a reactionary cycle that's called generational theory. And then uh, every 80 years, then it kind of starts over because the next generation takes over. 
There's another one. At, what, what's important about that cycle, I won't spend a lot of time on that unless you have questions because I know you talked to Brandon about that yesterday. But one thing that's important about that is that we have like natural law. So um, natural law is like uh, a priori truths, like things that are true, like gravity, gravity right? So yeah. like if I drop this, it's going to fall, right? However, with enough money and technology, I could suspend gravity temporarily, but I'm still going to always have to be beholden to it. And no matter how much money I have, if I fall off a freaking cliff, I'm going to die. Um, so I can suspend gravity temporarily, but I always have to be holding to it. There's another um, natural law. That's the law of sowing and reaping. I must sow before I reap. That's a natural law. How can you consume before you produce? I mean, you have to produce before you consume. Proof of work. Proof of work. And so when you look at this generational theory, where we're at in that cycle is violating natural law. And so we have a, a group of people today that are, consuming and they've never produced so because the hard times created good men good men created good times those good times created enough wealth that the next generations could live without producing and so most of academia and politics today are people that have never produced anything they don't understand how the real world works at all but they're the ones making the rules but making rules without any grounding in real world facts and so uh, kind of like uh, suspending gravity temporarily that wealth with enough money and technology, they're able to consume without producing, but eventually that fails. Well, it's, it's a bit like COVID with lockdowns and the effect on business. A uh, lot of small, medium-sized businesses, they had to close, yeah. even with support, even with financial support. I mean, look, some maybe survived with loans, but it really affected people. But everybody in government kept their job. Yeah. And maybe they worked from home, but nobody got fired from government. They, yeah. they had no skin in the game. Yeah. So um, I, 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 like, I, like, I love that generational theory of the fourth turning. Um, if, we look at a, if I look at an 80-year cycle, what we typically see every 80 years is what's called a regime change or a populist uprising. So 80 years ago was the end of World War II. That was Hitler. That was Mussolini. In the U.S., we had FDR's New Deal, which turned the U.S. into um, socialism. 84 years before that, we had Karl Marx that wrote the Communist Manifesto, which led to the European Spring, which is the largest revolution in history. Um, and so that's every 84 years we see that. And of course, three times 84 equals the 252. And the, every 250 years we see the, the big, the big revolution cycle. And would you therefore consider Trump and Brexit part they're of They're a big piece of that. Yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, that's a big piece of it. The, the one thing that uh, we have to keep in mind is that when we're looking at these cycles, um, kind of like the four seasons on the calendar, as we talked about. So there's a day on the calendar where it changes from spring to summer. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean the weather changes that exact day. It's kind of plus or minus, right? And so these cycles, it's like it doesn't happen on an exact day, but it's within this five-year period, things are starting to shift kind of a thing like that. Um, the, other, the other thing that I would say, there's another cycle that I really like. It's called the pendulum. And so these are pieces that I've gotten from other people's works. Um, and there's a book written called The Pendulum. It's a great book. And, and it basically also breaks down the 80-year cycles. And it talks about this pendulum that swings back and forth, and it goes from a, a we cycle, so we is collectivism, to a me cycle, which is individualism. And so what happens is, is that um, I'm so tired of people telling me what to do and that we're all in this together. I just want to go be an individual. So we start swinging that way, and we get to a good point, but then we keep going. Hey, this is really good, and, and then it gets bad. And then everyone's out for themselves and then it swings back the other way. And so it's just like this constant back and forth. And to give you a couple ideas I, I, um, on that. So we have like um, 
couple dates on that. So the we cycles were like 1783, 1863, 1943, and 2023. It's, um, it's an 80-year cycle. So just after you kicked us out. Yeah, just after we kicked. It's an 80-year cycle. So you basically have the peak of, of, of we, of centralization, and then it's 20 years back down to center, and then 20 years up to the peak of the other one, and then 20 years back down. So it's kind of 40 years in each cycle. It never sense. stays in the center. It never stays in the center. It just goes back and forth. And, and, and is, that, is that politics driven? Because po- politics, you know, they recognize a problem and they drive an alternative opinion, then they have to deliver that. I don't, I don't know if it's that. I think it's just people. So okay. like um, if we look at like a couple of these, I have a couple of key dates. Is like um, in 1783, which was peak centralization, the U.S. won the Revolutionary War, right? And then uh, the next one, we had the Gettysburg Address, and that was like all men are created equal, right? That was a, the Statue of Liberty. Everyone's welcome, right? Those are those are collectivism ideas. 1943, Hitler, Stalin, the UN was formed. IMF got started. Bretton Woods Agreement, McCarthyism in the United States. Those are all centralization things that all happened on that at that time period. And that's um, that's global centralization as well. That's global, right? And then we have. Uh, 2023, which is the next peak cycle. And look what we have. World Economic Forum, World Health Organization, World Trade Organization, World Meteorological Association. We have the IMF. We have the UN. A UN completely ineffective and nobody trusts any of the other institutions for shit right now. Yeah. But I mean, if that's not peak centralization, I don't know what is. Well, what's super interesting about that is we're seeing... President Bukele and El Salvador completely taking on the IMF and saying, uh, I don't need you. I, I love it. I can use decentralization to avoid using you. Yeah. So that's, that's like that one of those first flags of, of somebody going against the centralization, saying we can do this different. And I guess, and jumping ahead probably to you know, some of your answers later on, but that could create a snowball effect where other people are like, huh, they've done it without the IMF. We can do it without the IMF. Yeah. So as we're we're peaking out at centralization or globalization and the world is starting to reject it, so we have populist uprisings all around the world right now as we speak, and a president is also pushing back. So we're peaking out and we're starting to get the pushback and it's going to start swinging back the other way. Interesting. Interesting. So the fact that the president of El Salvador is doing that is a sign of this exactly what I'm talking about happening. Interesting. Huh. And then we have peak decentralization cycles where like um, 1823, President James Monroe said the U.S. is not subject to the EU powers anymore. Uh, 1903, well, 1983, you'll like this one. Michael Jackson, crazy costumes, total individual, right? Single kiss, rock band kiss. Um, and those were like individualism. We almost, uh, people almost went overboard with costumes and to be this, be different than everybody else. Um, Ronald Reagan said, Gorbachev, tear down that wall, right? Um, and 2063 will be the peak of uh, the individual, the me cycle again. It's in about 40 years from now. Must, I think also, be here. I think also like, uh, we see like, uh, the rise of, uh, postmodernism or Marxism. So there's an attack on free speech. You don't have the right to say anything. You're not an individual. It's we, 
we're all in this together, right? They're attacking private property rights. You don't have the right as an individual to have private property rights. It's a collective. So you can see that with um, what happened in uh, in a Kenosha with a kid Rittenhouse, right? Yeah. He, he was there trying to help people defend their private property. And we saw all throughout when, when the rats were happening in Seattle and in Portland, if anybody, any shop owner went to protect their shop, they would be attacked. Like they'd be marching down the street. And if they saw somebody try to protect their shop, they'd come and attack them because you don't have the right to defend your private property. So it's like an attack on individualism because we're at peak centralization right now. So I think right. those are all. Okay. I see, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, I'm following you. So this is we're in that period, peak centralization, where other people are trying to be individuals and they're being prevented because right, I get it. I thought because we're saying, all yeah, in this together. We're all in this together. You're putting me at risk by not because your health isn't up and then my health isn't up and we're not you're you're putting me at risk because we're all in this together kind of a thing. You and where does the post these people often refer right now, we're in a post truth world where it's yeah. very difficult to find the truth of things. You know, I you mentioned earlier I get all the shit, but like I'm always, one thing I'll always say, I'm always trying to find the truth. I'm always trying to be honest. And if I make a mistake, it's because I'm wrong and I'll admit I'm wrong, but I'm always trying to find the truth. And I find trying to find the truth, Mark, I find it so fucking hard for two reasons. Firstly, whatever topic is out there being discussed at the moment, it could be money, it could be COVID, it could be politics. There is always a counter argument to every argument. But the bigger problem I found is, is that if you're in a cohort and you're trying to find a, a, an answer to something and it's different from what the cohort thinks, there are threats to you by even just trying to figure it out. Yeah. I mentioned this in the show. Maybe it was with Brandon. I was trying to figure out what was going on with the Aboriginal communities in Australia. I was trying to find out the facts. Like what is really going on there? And uh, and I've shared information on both sides. But in at the point I shared an article from Quillette, which is a publication which is historically centered and will we'll challenge both sides, was trying to say these are some of the facts on the ground in Australia. Some of it didn't seem right, some of it did. But even just presenting that and say, hey, listen, I found this. I'm not sure if it's all right, but here's some other information. It was attack, attack, attack. It was this thing that's like, shit, maybe that's a threat on me for even trying to find that information, which was kind of weird. Uh, and if I feel like there's not only that happening, it's like like everything to do with gender at the moment. And I'm not a transphobic person or anything, but again, it's another example where language is being changed. How does that play into this? So the way that plays into it is um, it's morality is under attack. Okay. Morality. And I think um, this, is a, this is a key piece. I was actually thinking about this the other day. It's on a, on a, on a different, uh, I, had, I was making some different notes, working on some different content, but talking about morality is under attack. It actually was uh, at the end of The Sovereign Individual, they talk about this. And morality is, is very important. And morality can mean different things to different people. Um, obviously, there's different religions and they believe in different things. Um, but there's no denying the fact that any nation that's had shared values on morality has been able to succeed. So whether you look at the Quakers or the Amish or the Mormons or in the U.S. it was the Protestants or it was the Catholics, it doesn't really matter. Um, the Jews, you know, the Jews have to take the Sabbath day off. Even if you don't agree with that, the fact that people have a shared set of values and morals um, brings cohesion and helps people to um, 
work together in advance. And so all of our morals have been completely destroyed. All the values have been completely destroyed. And then also everything that's true has been destroyed. So the relativism. So there's no such thing as male or female anymore. <laughs> really? Two plus two isn't four anymore. Like there's no such thing as math anymore. And so they've destroyed like the morals. They've destroyed all the, you know, the facts. And um, when we say they, can you just define that for me? Again, I think it's like the flock of birds. It's the organic. And so it's, it's organic, right? So um, it's Marxism. Right, uh-huh. it's Marxism. It's, it's coming back. I would, I, I would say they being Marxist. So whoever believes in that ideology, believes that they should push that ideology. That's they, um, not like a, a group of people that get together on Saturday night and discuss what they're going to do next week. Um, but people that that uh, abide by that 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 ideology. And uh, under Marxism, if you've taken the time, I had to go back and really study Marx because I thought I understood it, but I had to actually go back and study him some more. If you go back and study who he was and what conditions he lived under and what time period he lived under and what his family conditions were and what drove him, et cetera. Um, but one of the things is that, you know, they believe that um, you should lie. They believe that you should lie to um, other people to get what you want. Like most, like even there's like honor among thieves, typically kind of a thing, right? But not under Marxism. And so people that um, believe in that ideology believe that they should push that. And they believe that they should break down the nuclear family. They don't want the nuclear family because they want people to be dependent on the state, for example. So when I say they, breaking down morality, breaking down um, those things, it's people that, uh, that push that ideology. Do you think they know they're Marxists? Well, some of them do. I mean, obviously, yeah, of like, course. But do you the, think some of them like, are, are Blindly Marxist. Oh, yeah, most of them. Yeah. Most of them have no idea. They don't well, understand the consequences of what they're saying. Yeah, they, they don't understand. I mean, this is what they're just taught in the university. If you think about the university um, and politics, the university is socialism, right? Think of a professor. A professor goes and provides no real value, um, teaches stuff that's probably five or ten years old. Um, he's there for a long enough time. He gets tenure. He can never get fired. He doesn't make a lot of money, but, you know, he's there for life. Like, it's kind of like socialism. It's not, a, it's not a meritocracy. He's not getting paid for the value he's providing. He's just getting paid, right? So it's like a socialist system, and they push socialist values on kids. I mean, I'm not the only one saying that. I mean, listen to Jordan Peterson. I mean, he talks about it extensively. Well, I did. I heard, but I also heard him coming back and saying, I can now teach online to millions of people right. from a computer, and they can pay less. And he said the only thing... It was with Saifedean. He said the only value left is the accreditation. Yeah. That's what you're buying. You're paying accreditation for nothing else. Yeah. I have a 17-year-old daughter, and so this is something I've been wrestling a lot with lately. And I don't, I don't want her to go to college. And um, I was listening just, I think it was actually today, today or yesterday, I was listening to a, a, a little YouTube clip of Jordan Peterson and Dennis Prager. And Dennis Prager asked Peterson, do you think kids are, except for the STEM, so science, technology, right? The, the, except for, uh, you know, if you want to be a doctor or t- attorney, except for that, do you think it's worse off for kids not to go to college? And Peterson, you know, he took a long time to come back and he said, yeah, I think it hurts kids. Straight up. So they're learning Marxism and to your point, they don't know it. Yeah, they're just, they, they're, they're not being taught history. And this goes back to history. Uh, I've had my daughter read The Case Against Socialism, which Rand Paul re- wrote. It was great. I've had her go back and read all these books. I've had to pay her a lot of money to do it. Um, <laughs> I know that bribe. I pay him a lot of money to read these books, but it's so worth it to me. It's way cheaper than going to college. Um, and so she's read all the books on socialism. She's read all the books on economics and history and all those things. And so, um, yeah, these, you know, unfortunately, most people don't probably know. Interesting. Yeah. 
it's it, you know when you talk about this flock of birds it just makes me think of those videos during the blm riots whereby i support anyone's right to protest i think they should be able to protest yeah but there was these little mob groups running around in front of restaurants yelling at people eating dinner you know running and attacking cars like, yeah in, like that to me was where journalists it, and stuff. yeah journalists and that to me was like this organic mob of stupidity um but this idea that they don't know they're Marxists is is super interesting. And it's just a sign of the times, right? Yeah. So it's uh, Marxism keeps coming back, and, and, and I can explain that too. Dude, I was in uh, El Salvador having dinner one night. I'm not going to tell you who it was with. I was sat down with uh, four people, and there was uh, one person there specifically said, it was brought up that classic line uh, where we were talking about uh, Bitcoin, explaining why it's a benefit, and she yeah, she wasn't sure. She uh, she said it. It sounds to me it's like another, it's another tool that keeps the rich rich and poor poor. She said, and I was like, well, what's the answer? And she said, well, Marxism. You know, we, everything should be equal. Everything should be fair. And I was like, I couldn't believe I was hearing this. And and I was like, but you are aware of the failures of communism through history. And she's like, yeah, but it's never been done right. I was like, how many fucking times have yeah. I heard that line? Did you see Wikipedia was changing that page? The um. How many people have died under communism? Their Wikipedia has taken that page down. Why? Well, why do you think? They don't want people to know that. But, but it's fucking idiotic because when you see that, you know your, you know your ideology is flawed. It's just a failure of the education. I, I'm trying to think of the right words to even say. You know, it's like um, I, I have a hard time understanding how anybody can see that because there's no, there's no such thing as everybody equal. Like the majority of people are equally poor. And then a small minority are equally rich. Like <laughs> there's no equality. You're all equally poor. You all equally get one scoop of rice a day. Sure, you're all equal. C- congrats. Good job. <laughs> um, I think I think you know Marxism and um, Marxism and Keynesians both have something in common. And what they both have in common is the opposite of what Austrian economics. So Austrian economics is built on um, human action, uh-huh. psychology. Marxists and Keynesians both miss out on the big key piece, which is human motivation, right? So Karl Marx, back to Karl Marx, he was mad at the world. He hated the world because his, he came from a rich family. His parents were attorneys. They wanted him to be an attorney. He didn't want to be an attorney. He wanted to write poetry and philosophy. But in 1800s, nobody was, or, uh, nobody was going to pay you to write philosophy and poetry. So he couldn't feed his family doing what he wanted to do. And he was mad about that. He hated the world for that. Do you believe uh, his observations of capitalism were fair though? No, completely wrong. Well, they, they were probably fair. They might've been fair for the time he lived in because it was the start of the industrial age. So, at, so he was witnessing going from the agrarian age into the industrial age. So it was the very beginning. It, was, it happened almost at the same time. And so he was witnessing people going to, from the farms where life is good and moving into cities and working in factories. And I'm guessing it probably wasn't super good working in a factory in the very beginning, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they didn't even know what machines hardly were at the time. There was probably accidents and people were probably working too hard and kids worked on the farm. My dad grew up on a farm. When my dad grew up on a farm, my grandfather would loan him out to other farmers to help him bring in their fields. That's just what happens, right? So you had people, kids, families growing up on a farm. I'm guessing families worked in the factories and things probably weren't ideal at that time. And so, but, that's, but that was his worldview. And I think it's important to understand that. But the point that I want to make is that, um, you know, he wanted to write poetry 
And he thought that the rich people should just give him, hey, hey, I just want to write poetry and I can't get paid. So Peter, you go work really hard and just share some of your money with me and we'll just all be equal, right? Doesn't that sound good? No, because you don't understand human motivation. If I don't, we're driven by self-determination, right? And so like, I want to get ahead, so I'm going to work harder. But if you're going to take away my upside, then why would I go work hard? What's my motivation? So Keynesians don't get that. And, and Marxists don't get that either. Interesting. Okay, let's talk about tech cycles. Are we done, are we done on that? Well, we didn't get to, I want to, I want to hit. I don't the, want to miss anything. Yeah, so uh, we, we talked about BLM and Antifa. I think that's also kind of showing this 80-year 80 year populist uprising cycle. But I want to jump into real quick the 250 year cycle before yeah. we jump into yeah. that because I think that's, that's, that's the big one, right? So three times 80, 84 is the 250. And I think what's important to understand about that is a couple things. Um, first off, there's, uh, there's like the fate of empires that's been talked about where like no empire lasts more than like 250 years. There's also, there's like a 250 years of democracy doesn't typically last more than 250 years. And what's important about that is um, they all follow the same pattern. And because it's reactionary, just like the fourth turning, just like the strong men, great, good times kind of a thing. And what's interesting, if you look at this, you have, um, you have like the outburst. So like the, the spring, new life is happening, right? And then you have conquest where like things have People have gotten it figured out. You have commerce where business is finally getting set up and now things are starting to move pretty good. Then you have affluence. Now people have lots of money. Things are going really good. What comes after affluence is intellect. Now we've made a bunch of money. Let's all just go be uh, in academics. After intellect comes decadence. Uh-huh. So they had, they worked really hard. They got the commerce going. They got affluence, money. They got rich. Then they turned to intellect. Then they went to decadence, like buying an NFT for $68 million. Huh. Rock Jake bags. And then you have the decline and then the eventual collapse. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Compass Mining. And you know what? They are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of theirs, and I am now mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for three months now. I've already paid off one of my S19s, and I'm close to paying off the second one. It is so good to be back mining. And you know what? I just really love these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they will do everything else for you. If you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up is BlockFi, and you can now earn a $250 bonus in Bitcoin when you sign up with BlockFi, as they have recently launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card is the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. You can also earn 2% in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend and you can also get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership. But please do make sure you check out the terms for this. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash P-E-T-E-R. And next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. 
Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, and I have been a Ledger customer since way back in early 2017. And the Nano S I bought back then, yep, I'm still using that bad boy now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up today, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying. I have not sold a single sat through Gemini because we are in a bull market. And you know what? I just don't want to sell my Bitcoin. I'm a hodler. You're a hodler, right? Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Where does, where does sex play a role in the decadence as well? Uh, I don't know if sex... I don't know if where sex falls in the decadence. Sex is also something I haven't, I haven't put a lot of thought into where that fits into things. Um, sex is on the decline big time in Western I, nations. I'm thinking more of the male, female. I'm thinking more of the availability of sex, the breakdown of relationships. The there's, I feel like also in society we've uh, handed, I think with uh, online dating, the swiping we've handed control men have got more control over relationships now because like before it was you know you had to go up in a bar and chat to a girl and it's fucking scary right god forbid she'd actually talk back it was an amazing moment and if she dated you it's like fuck i better stay with her because i might never get laid again yeah but now we've got the ability for men to just swipe 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 and it's awful for women it's terrible and this like this Kind of positions change. You don't think women are swipe, swipe, swiping? No, I think they are. But like my experience talking to my friends, it's like guys are not settling down and girls can't find a boyfriend. They can't find someone to settle down. And I'm just wondering like if, if this is playing a part in it at all. Well, I think it is in a sense where there's an attack. Marxism is attack on the nuclear family yeah. and they're trying to change the roles of people. So um, again, back to morality, whether you agree with it or not, um, everyone abiding by a certain set of rules, people get along better. Um, and I think when you turn everything upside down, nobody knows what role to play anymore. There's a bunch of factors. I don't know where that really falls into yeah. this though. Okay. But going back to the 250 year cycle, then we have, um, we have a couple of periods to go through. So you have like uh, faith. So we're, we're starting out, we're building, we have courage. Um, so the founding fathers, right. Uh, coming back after, Germany, we talked about Germany, I think before, was about with their hyperinflation. After, when Germany was coming out of World War II and they were, got their whole country bombed to crap and they had no money and they had to work their asses off mm -hmm. to come out of that, right? They had to have courage. The, the, the hard times created strong men, right? Germany. And Germany, you're from Europe, you know, UK. Germany's been the production powerhouse of Europe. Dude, it's, it's what's kept the EU going. It's what they kept the EU, right? Because they came with that strong work ethic, uh -huh. right? So you have courage. Then you have liberty. Leads to abundance. Abundance leads to selfishness. Then it leads to complacency. 
apathy, then dependence, like UBI, anyone? And then after dependence, the final stage is bondage. So this is what's happening all throughout history. This is the, these are the cycles that we go through in that 250-year cycle. And so it's easy to see, you know, the, the apathy, the dependence, mm-hmm. and the bondage. Um, but what's interesting, I won't spend a lot of time here, but I do want to talk about um, a couple points um, just real quickly. So it's about 250 years. So 250 years ago was um, the, the American and French Revolution. 250 years before that was the Protestant Reformation. And what each of those represented were rejecting centralization to go to decentralization. And this is the key piece here. So um, under the Protestant Reformation, the church and the state were together and nobody had the Bible. And so the only way to get to God was through the church. It was centralized. When everyone got the Bible, they said, oh, we can have our own decentralized route to God. Obviously, the American Revolution rejected the monarchy, the centralization of the monarchy, and set up a, a decentralized government, a republic. Uh-huh. Right? Rejected centralization to move back to decentralization. I think that's a really key piece. Um, and there's another key piece here. And so we're in, if we're in a revolution year and we're facing peak centralization and we're pushing back on centralization to go to decentralization – but what happens on the other side of this? And so there's another pendulum that seems to swing back and forth. And about every 250 years, we go from um, basically scientific, rational, mechanical to um, artistic, emotional, collaborative. So um, 250 years ago, approximately, was the Industrial Revolution. That was mechanical. But before that, in 1550, 250 years before that was the Renaissance. Huh. And what's interesting is I'm sure you've probably heard like the Renaissance 2.0 thesis, right? So what, made, what, what kicked off the Renaissance, we had the Dark Ages for a thousand years or whatever. And then the Renaissance started. And what really got the Renaissance started was two things. One, the printing press, which decentralized information so everyone could have information. And we got the Florin, which was the longest lasting coin for about 400 years without being um, – debased. So having information decentralized and a currency that that was globally recognized and couldn't be debased led to the greatest explosion we'd ever seen. So that was the Renaissance. 250 years later, we had another one, but it went to industrial revolution. And now we're about to have another one. So this revolution, after this revolution, should go back to the Renaissance 2.0 thesis. Huh. And we have Bitcoin. And we have the internet. And we have the internet. The internet is like the printing press. It's decentralized information. And Bitcoin is like the florin. And Bitcoin is like the florin. Huh. Okay. So I see massive hope and prosperity ahead yeah. in the world. We come to solution. Let me ask you one thing before I forget about it. So interestingly, the EU is centralization. Brexit is the start of decentralization right. again. If the EU as part of this could break up. Potentially. Right. Not now. It doesn't feel like it's something now. Germany might decide to leave. <laughs> They're like fucking fed up of paying for everyone. But yeah. I also think I also think the single currency, the the euro itself, obviously is centralization. Yeah. But that's that's led to a lack of control yeah. for uh individual countries over there. They don't have a sovereign currency anymore. They have a European currency and a European central bank, which certainly puts them at a disadvantage. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. 
So we have these 80-year cycles, and we can see we've, uh, we've gone through hundreds of years to show how they kind of repeat. With the 3 times 80 equals 250, and so we can see that we're kind of at this peak centralization. We can see that every 250 years it changes, and we're about to change right now. So I think that helps us understand what's going on in the world today, in my opinion. When we see the WEF and the WHO and they're trying to put these, these measures in place, I think it just makes things more clear when you understand it from that lens. Because we're rejecting them. Because we're reject because they're trying to squeeze harder and we're rejecting them at the same time. Okay. Not enough people. Mm. Does it require a majority to reject it? No. Because a revolution can be from a minority. 10%. Yeah. 10% of the people. Or 2 million of 7 million in Austria. If you look at, like, uh, if you studied, like, uh, Solzhenitsyn, he, he wrote the Gulag Archipelago, right? Um, and he talked about how um, it was the writings that woke people up. When people, have you seen the YouTube channel uh, Academy of Ideas? No, I haven't. Oh, man. I've sent it to a bunch of people. They're all hooked. You'll binge watch all the oh, videos. Oh, man, I'm going to do it now. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's awesome. I don't know the guy who's doing it, but... Um, He's, he's, he's really good. Anyway, um, he does a lot of, talks a lot about this, but um, Solzhenitsyn, uh, who wrote the Gulag Ar Archipelago, talked about, you know, he started writing stories and it, it led to the downfall of, of Russia, the USSR. Free minds for a free society. Yeah. So, um, so I think, I think we, so that's what led us to here. I think we can see that the world is, is rejecting that at the same time. And then what I would say is that um, what's interesting, that moves on a 250-year cycle. Then we have te technological revolutions move on a 50-year cycle. So what's important to understand is we went through all the political, social, cultural cycles, and we know that solutions come to problems, or they're supposed to. And so um, when we talk about technological revolutions, we're not talking about new technologies. So we're not talking about iPhones. We're not talking about Uber. We're talking about things that are revolutions that change the way humanity works. Yeah, we discussed this earlier because there's a book I often bring up on the podcast that you might like if you haven't read it. It's called Engines That Move Markets. Okay. And that talks about big changes. It's different from your list. We try to compare, but it does talk about the railroads, but it talks about electricity. It talks about the light bulb. It talks yeah. about the telephone. And I keep saying, like, at some point they're going to do a new version where Bitcoin will be in it. Yeah, for sure. And so they work on like this 50-year time frame. And so if you look at the industrial revolution, which we already talked about with Marx, it brought people from the farms into cities and factories and then steam engines. And uh, for all of humanity, people walked or, um, or steam engines. They, people had horsepower or manpower and that was it. Now they have steam power. Right? They had steel. They could only real, build two stories. Now they could build skyscrapers. Um, these, these things change humanity. Of course, electricity. And of course, when you look at these things, it's like electricity at the time was like a digital candle. What do we need a digital candle for? My candle's better. I can carry it around. It's been light for 5,000 years. It's portable. Why do I need all these friggin' wires around, right? Um, if you think back. And then we had, obviously, the age of oil, automobiles, things like that. Then we had 1971, which was the age of the microprocessor, which led the personal computers, and then the internet, telecommunications, all that, which that was in 1971. So 1971 plus 50 years puts us right about here, 2021. And I think we're seeing the same thing. Now, what's... Some of the characteristics of that is like they're not. Um, Can I ask you a question? That yeah. Are we talking about the when this technology was invented, or are we talking about when it started to become used? So, for example, I'm thinking Bitcoin, but it's like well, it's 13 years old, but really, it's going mainstream this year. Yeah, you understand the question. Well, and maybe it was even started sooner because I mean they were trying yeah. to solve digital cash even before Bitcoin. Of right? course, yeah. Um, but I think. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, again, these aren't exact days. These are ranges of things, right? And so uh, if you look at the printing press, the Industrial Revolution, and steam engines, those weren't all exactly 50 years. Okay, okay. Some were... It's a range. Some were 57 years. Some were 40, 42, right? Um, it's about about every 50 years. Um, but um, again, they're like reactionary, right? And so um, whatever was the problem at the time seems to be solved. And so as we're approaching peak centralization peak globalization, um, it would make sense that we would have a new technological revolution that would lead to decentralization. And I think it's actually very interesting because one moves on a 50-year time frame and one works on a 250-year time frame, but they're both converging right now to give us exactly what we need. Huh. Right? And so, um, again, the solution comes to the problem. And so, yeah, I think it's very interesting that um, it's, it's converging, right? We, we, get, we get the tool to deliver us from the problems that we have today. Are we just lucky? Or again, is this like the buildup of an organic reaction? The cypherpunks foresaw problems and they've worked on this for years and finally Satoshi pulled the pieces of the jigsaw together. And like, is, there, is this like a, almost like a, an immune response? Or have we just got fucking lucky? No, it's not lucky. I mean, the solution came to the problem. Yeah. Right? So there was the problem. And they found a solution for it, right? We know, we know Satoshi found a solution for the problem because in the first line of code, he wrote, you know, the bankers on, a, on, the, on the verge of a bailout. And so um, it, wasn't, it wasn't lucky at all. They saw the problem that was happening and they, they came up with a solution for it. Just like, just, like, mm. just like all technological revolutions previous to that. Yeah. We're solving problems. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't just lucky. Um, but, it, but, it, but it does line up pretty well. So I think that's, that's one of the pieces. And I think when you look at the technology, if, if you look at the problems, and I think this is a bigger piece about the decentralized revolution overall that I think has to be understand, understood, especially in, in the, the Bitcoin versus crypto sort of debate, right? Because, again, solutions come to problems. Did the world need faster money? Hmm. I don't Not think so. Because Venmo and hmm. Visa work pretty dang fast. I like, mean, is, is that is that a problem? Was our money too slow? Right. So, like, so, I mean, you could argue some aspects of international transfer and settlement, but yeah, I, I see right. your point. So, I think what the problems are is one. Um, well, it's really just one. It's the money printer. Uh, but if you think about it, we have centralization of the of the government, centralization of the power, um, centralization of the money supply. We have an unlimited money supply, which is obviously causing all the problems that we have. Um, we have, we have a really big problem that we used to have a rule of law, common law from the UK, and then we had a rule of law in the, in the United States as well. And the, the law, the Constitution was supposed to be easy to understand. We all should know what that means. And I could set my life, I could plan my life based off the law, and you could plan your life based off the law. But today we're not ruled by law anymore. Today we're ruled by men who change the rules arbitrarily whenever they want. And we were just talking before we started recording about um, potentially travel restrictions coming up. Like, I don't even know what the rules are going to be next month. I just had a live conference in Miami two weeks ago. I was going to do it after the first of the year, but I was afraid that we may not be able to travel after the first of the year. It's a fair point. We've got an active discussion. You know, Danny's based in Australia. I'm based in the UK, and we're trying to plan ahead in the future. It's like, we don't know if he'll be able to leave Australia. I don't know if I'll be able to leave the UK. Yeah. Huh. Okay. We, we can't have that. Nope. You can't, you can't live like that. We have to build a plan. Hmm. And how, how, how can we plan when we, don't, when we have people that are arbitrary? You, you can't eat inside your restaurant. 
So we set up outside. Oh, now you can't eat outside. But you can do inside with 30% with plexiglass. So, okay, I spent all the money on plexiglass. Oh, now you can do 50%. It's like, you can't just change the rules whenever you want. We can't have that. So that's a big problem. It needs to be hard to change the rules like with Bitcoin. Immutable laws, right? And then we, then we have a big problem with censorship. And not just censorship in what I can say on YouTube or Twitter, but even just censorship and the ability to hold my property, right? So um, they said with your real estate, you can't uh, raise rents or evict people. Or Quidem was in yesterday. Said they've just brought rent controls to Minneapolis. Right. So we're being censored with our own private property. I um, my my wealth is being sold through inflation. And if I want to send it to you, but they don't like you, then they stop it and block it. We saw um, PayPal teamed up with the Anti Defamation League a couple months ago to make a list of all the people that shouldn't get money from PayPal, and then they were going to share that with all the other financial institutions. That's a problem. Big problem. Okay. So I believe those are the problems that we have. Centralization, unlimited money supply, um, censorship, and rules by men. Okay. So let's throw social media into the mix. Well, I think... Um, but so- can I, just my question on social media, let me put it, put it to you first. Is Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, is that peak centralization? And is that socialism? No. No. I think it's uh, well. I, I think it is peak centralization. I guess I would say um, what we've seen. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it socialism, but I think it is peak centralization because what we've seen is basically the government and the corporations are merging together. Is it verging into Marxism? I think the people that are running them are probably have Marxist ideas, um, and um, and perhaps. Jack Dorsey leaving Twitter is because he can't deliver the product he wants for the audience he wants. So he's leaving to focus on Bitcoin and decentralized products, maybe an alternative to Twitter. Who knows? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't know him personally, but from from what I hear from people that that do know him and have talked to him, that seems to be the, the situation that he's maybe tried to hold back the tide as best as he could while he was there and, and, uh, we know that he's been working on other projects, um, and so he wants to go do that full time. Whether, whether I would consider Twitter to be Marxist, though, I don't know. It's definitely peak centralization because we're seeing the government influence. Yeah, look, I don't think it's Marxist, but what I'm what I'm getting at is, are there are there strands of Marxism in there? For example, with the arbitrary choice of what is truth and what isn't, what can be said and what can't be said. Yeah. You know, there's the argument that Twitter is a private company and they can say what, you know, they can set the rules and stuff like that. And there's the counter argument that they're the public town square and they have to allow free speech and they're quasi government. The government's telling them what to do. I mean, there's a lot of arguments. It's a whole conversation on its own. Um, it's, okay. def- it's definitely peak centralization because the government and Twitter is working together. Um, I just don't know if I consider that Marxism. Um, they're not pushing for equality. Um, yeah, I probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't put it there. No, not pushing for equality. Well, I, I just I wouldn't call it Marxist. I no, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's Marxist, but I'm saying okay. Let me try and frame this in a better way. Is it a useful platform for people with Marxist tendencies to push their agenda? Sure, sure, yeah. Well, uh, and and they do push their agenda yeah. versus uh, allowing free open discussion. So the the Hunter Biden laptop was like a perfect example of that, right? As soon as anybody posted that, instantly got their accounts banned. Even just retweeting from an from an from one of the oldest newspapers in the United States, they just retweeted something and got their accounts banned. And so 
um, there's obviously they're, they're pushing one side of an agenda for sure. Okay. Okay. So, but I would say that again, the solution comes to the problems. So the problems that we have politically, socially, culturally are that the centralization, the, um, ever-changing laws, the censorship, et cetera. And so those are the solutions that we need. And so um, interesting enough, then we have a technology that gives us all of those features. And I think what's important to understand about that piece is that if you believe that those are the problems, like I do, that unlimited money supply, centralization, censorship, um, changing laws, if those are the problems, then what we need is decentralization, fixed monetary supply, immutable law, and um, censorship resistance. Huh. And if you think those are the <laughs> solutions that we need, then you would go, I think today there's about 15,000 cryptocurrencies. How many of them match all those attributes? One for sure. I would say one. I could see people make an argument for maybe considering Monero or something, but like one for sure, one clearly leading. So even if somebody makes a solid argument for the others, it doesn't matter. Interesting. And this is, okay, this is really interesting because I've been having a conversation in the last 48 hours about how Bitcoin at the moment is kind of losing the popular war narrative in cryptocurrencies in that we have Crypto.com sponsoring Staples Center. Mm -hmm. We have FTX sponsoring Miami Heat. We have valid talk of Ethereum maybe flipping Bitcoin. It's totally possible with their loose monetary policy helping them. We have Solano absolutely flying. And I've been talking about this to people. We're losing that war on narrative. But that doesn't matter because the revolution can come from a minority. And as long as we have enough people understand what is going on, this picture you're painting, understand why Bitcoin matters and defending that in the face of all the bullshit that we get for that. I would say that we are losing that narrative because we want to. We're constantly saying Bitcoin, not crypto. At least I am. Yeah. Bi no, no, hang on. No, no, we're talking about Bitcoin, not cryptocurrency. So we are losing that narrative, and I'm trying to drive that narrative. No, we're talking about Bitcoin, not crypto. The other thing I would say that's interesting, going back to history, I don't have the exact stat in front of me, but I believe, look it up. <laughs> I believe in uh, like uh, 2000 at the, at the height of the dot-com, 1999, 2000, I think there was four stadiums that were named for dot-com companies that were bankrupt within the next like 24 months. Interesting. So that's a fun fact. So when you talk about crypto.com and uh, FTX and, and, and so forth, um, we saw that same thing in 1999, and it didn't work out too well for them back then. So um, that was interesting. But I think um, we are... We, we are you know, trying to push the narrative that Bitcoin is not crypto. Um, but as far as losing the narrative, I mean, dude, El Salvador, they're using Bitcoin. No, 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 don't uh, get me Fortune wrong. Fortune 500 companies are, build, are, are holding Bitcoin, right? Like, I, I, I mean, our narrative is fine. Absolutely fine. We're, we're, you know, we're winning and we're, we're having big wins. What I mean is the popular narrative when people are coming into cryptocurrency, some people are just missing Bitcoin and they're forgetting about it. They yeah. go into other things. They... They're not seeing the big picture, the picture right. you're painting. They don't really understand money. They're in it for the quick gains. Yeah. You know, they're in it for the narrative their friends are telling them. 
that Bitcoin is boom tech and it's slow yeah. and you need Solano, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So this, this is a whole conversation. Actually, I was uh, I spent some time on earlier today talking about before I came over here. And it's really it's a sign of the times. And so the problem is we've built a gambler society. And so typically the way that I would earn money is by providing value to somebody provide you a valuable good, a valuable service, and I would get money. But the fiat money system has changed all of that. And so now today we have a gambler society. I think about a month or maybe two months ago, options trading surpassed stock trading for the first time in history. Wow. So options trading is gambling. They're using Robinhood. They're, they're, they're doing options. Stock trading typically means I'm buying equity in a company, right? I'm an investor. So now it's the gambler, Robinhood traders, um, stock um, crypto trading and what's interesting or not interesting but bad about this is that trading crypto assets or trading options makes us dollars but it provides no value i started out telling you my story started with real estate when i started buying um i was buying bank owned repos and these houses were thrashed the banks took them back there's no kitchens no floors and the banks can't sell them because people can't get a loan they can't no no lender would loan you money because there's no floor no kitchen so i would buy them remodel them and then someone could get a loan on them i was providing value i would Mm -hmm. buy it add value right Um, but today people are trading options or trading crypto assets and they're not providing any value but they're increasing their dollar stack and then they take those dollars that they earn from providing no value to the world and then they go take goods and services from you or somebody who is providing value so it's a it's a net drag on the world and that's just the state of the world that we're in today Yes. And so, um, you know, Bitcoin is like, go make your money and save it in Bitcoin. Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. Uh, uh, being, a, being a full, you know, lifetime inv- investor, I mean, the stock market's averaged 6% or 8%. Um, I think Bitcoin's got a 10x in front of it in the next five years. Dude, 170% a year is not enough for some people. No, they need 20x in the next 90 days. Yeah. And that's just, that's just the state of the world that we're in today. And um, that's a big problem. Well, so we come through that stronger. We'll, I mean, we'll get through we, as Bitcoiners. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think that's, I think that's part of the reason why the narrative they want to chase. You know, they need a twenty x in the next uh, couple weeks. My my seventeen year old daughter. I mean, her all her friends from high school are all trading options on Robinhood and trading meme stock or meme meme assets or whatever. My son's friends, yeah. One of them specifically. Hopefully, he'll listen to this. I'm not going to call him by name. <laughs> asking me if I had Shibu. Yeah. Yeah. My sister has fucking shibu. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my dad's been a Bitcoiner and he's old. He's 75. He's been a Bitcoiner since uh, 2017. And someone told me the other day, you know, your dad has other crypto besides Bitcoin, right? I'm like, what? What? And uh, I have a 30-year-old brother. I think maybe that's what happened. I don't know. I got to I gotta go find out what's you going got in on. The, <laughs> your dad's a shit coiner. I hope not. I don't know. I got to find out about that. that. Man. I, I got to go work on that. Someone told me that, so I got to figure that out. Um, the other thing, I'd, so going back to the technological revolutions, the other thing that's important to understand about technological revolutions is that they always work about the same way. So even though they're different, we have steam engines or electricity or, or the internet, and they're all different. And I think a couple things that kind of uh, typically happen, and this is also kind of shows us where we're at in the cycle, is that um, when you had like the automobile start, let's say in the early 1900s, um, very quickly people saw dollar signs and speculated and went out and built 250 automobile manufacturers. But there was two problems. One, there was no market. Who was going to buy all those cars? And even more importantly, number two, there was no infrastructure. There was no roads, no gas stations, no service stations. And so they all went out of business and three remained, Ford, Chrysler, GM, 
Well, that was like the dot-com boom. And that was exactly like the dot-com boom. And what's interesting about the dot-com boom is the same thing. So the first WW went live in 1990. The first purchase for internet, internet purchase happened in 1994 for the nerd's favorite food, pizza. <laughs> Shares that with Bitcoin. Uh, 1995 was the interesting point because that's when the first IPO happened, Netscape, and that brought all this, the money in. And so then we had the, IP, uh, the IPO boom. And so from 1995 to 2000, you had this, you know, dot com everything and the famous pets.com pets. and webvan.com yeah. but what but e-toys but the problem was the same thing two things one there was no market by the year 2000 less than 10% of people had bought anything online well the infrastructure as well we and still the, had a lot of people on dial up it was, it was or, too slow yeah dial up isdn it was too slow and you, and you also had you also had uh, so those are the two main things and then so they all went out of business amazon a few remained amazon a few remain. And I think we see the same yeah, thing happen with Bitcoin, which is um, you had Bitcoin, you had the first, you know, Ethereum, well, uh, Mastercoin, I think, and then Ethereum did the ICOs and then they brought the money in and then you had the ICO boom, just like the IPO boom. And now you have a, a, a blockchain for everything so we can manage lettuce on the supply chain now <laughs> and uh, whatever we're going to do, right? We're, we've done everything and uh, we're going to buy tickets online and all these things. Um, but I think the same two problems happened. One, there's no market for it. No one's buying freaking tickets on the blockchain. And two, the technology just wasn't there. The infrastructure wasn't there. Um, and I think the majority of them will go away. And now we're starting to see all of that technology being built on top of Bitcoin. But maybe three will remain or maybe just the one. I think I think a couple will remain. Blockchain's hard to kill, man. Lynn, Lynn Alden just wrote this piece uh, the other day, a couple of days ago, and it was break, POW versus POS. Yeah. Dude, it was like an hour read. She needs to break. <laughs> what is she doing? Oh, she's helpful to me. I'm. Uh, I've got a show with Lane Rettig in next next uh, New York, and he's an Ethereum guy. And we're doing a whole show on why he doesn't believe in proof of stake. Did you read that article she put together? It's no, long. I'm yeah, not, it's like I'm an hour. Not, I will do. But she did make a good point that I thought was was interesting, and she said, "I think we'll have like uh, I look at Bitcoin as like a protocol, and maybe the, these other ones are more like." Um, platforms or databases yeah that's what they are they're companies yeah companies. kind of equity actually she called it equity yeah. so companies yeah so i think that was a good way to look at it um but i think that kind of shows us and then another thing that's interesting is we can look at um adoption curves so you've seen like the innovators diffusion of innovation which is like an upside down bell curve like a bell curve right so you have like the the, the innovators uh, the visionaries the innovators the early majority late majority and you have this chasm that has to be crossed you're a marketing guy you know the chasm who's the guy with uh steve blank Crossing the chasm? Was it who wrote that? Um, it's book. Jeffrey Moore. Who wrote what is Steve? Author of Crossing the Chasm. What does Steve Blank write? Steve Blank write. Is it black or blank, Danny? And the way that the and then you so you have the the bell curve, the diffusion of innovation, and then you have an S curve. And S curve is what we use to look at adoption. So we can see how long it would take to get a current or get a new technology to reach adoption. And so typically the way an S curve works is at the time it takes to go from zero to ten percent adoption is the same time it goes from ten to ninety percent. Yeah. Are we at ten percent? Yeah. I think we hit ten uh, percent in two thousand nine. Right. So that means by two thousand by in the next eight years we should be around ninety percent adoption. Damn. With Bitcoin. Hold on, 2009 we launched. I'm sorry, 2019. Right. So the next 10 years is not the time to sell. The next year, it could be a, a good parabolic run, you know, Do up to, sell up to 90% 90% adoption. So I think there's that. And I think the reason why it's important to understand that is that technological revolutions drive financial markets, which takes us to the third revolution. Right. So if you look at it, um, 
the last technological revolution was the microprocessor, which led to the age of telecommunications and internet. And so obviously that's what's driven the entire financial market to this point, the FANG stocks, right? Mm -hmm. Before that was automobiles, GM, right? Ford, et cetera. Before that was electricity and oil. And so like, and it's different families that, that get rich all the time. It's not the rich always staying rich. It's like the Carnegie's and the steel and it's like the, 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 um, you know, the Ford families or whatever and automobiles. And then you obviously have the microprocessor, you know, companies and the, the Bezos and the, um, you know, all those companies. The sailors and the Bitcoin. Yeah. And then we have the sailors <laughs> and the Bitcoin. That book, by the way, is Four Steps of Epiphany. That's the one I was thinking of by oh, Steve Blank. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you one question before you get into that, just very quickly. Where does the metaverse play in this? Because that feels like technology, but peak centralization. Well, actually, interestingly, we might have that battle between <laughs> fucking amazing the Winklevoss and their decentralized metaverse versus Mark Zuckerberg and his centralized bullshit. You know, humans are, are really bad at imagining the future. Yeah. All we can do is imagine better versions of what we have today. We have cars, we'll have flying cars. Like we, we can't imagine something new. So for example, when the internet first came out, 1995, 1996, it was like, it's kind of like a way to send electronic messages. And we have like these chat rooms. And one day, one day we'll probably be able to buy stuff online. We didn't know that our car would be hooked to something called a cloud using something called social media to navigate us around traffic because we didn't have any of those things, right? And so um, trying to imagine what the metaverse is, I, it's, it's something I've been, I'm sure we've all been spending a lot of time thinking about. Um, I don't know. Something I don't want my kids using because it's probably going to be too much fun. What is the metaverse? Like, I mean, are we technically, are we technically in the metaverse now? I mean, I probably spend 50% of my time on a screen between my phone and my computer. I think we're in, actually, I think we're in the analog metaverse right now. But I think the metaverse, really, the goal of the metaverse is a uh, peripheral vision through a headset. So an immersive. Th- immersive 3D world where you can do what the fuck you want. Yeah, It's ready player one. So I saw that movie and I think that's a good, I think that's, that's kind of what I envision it to be. I've never been a gamer, um, but my old business partner is a big time gamer and we were, we went up on a snowboarding trip to Canada. This was a couple of years ago. And uh, the other guy we were there with is also a big gamer. And they're like, hey, there's this virtual reality arcade down the street. You guys want to go? And I was like, sure, I'll check it out. And we, I don't know if you've ever been to one, but it was like, there's like uh, four rooms on each side and they're like an eight by eight room with like pads on the walls and just like one entrance. And then like uh, the headset drops down and you hold the thing in your hand. And dude, it was like a small room. I knew where the door was right there. But as soon as I put that headset on, I like lost all like uh, I had no idea where I was. I didn't even know where the door was in the room anymore. Dude, I've got I've got an Oculus. They've got this thing called Walk the Plank on it. It's, okay. it's something like Steve's Walk the Plank. <clears throat> but this thing, right? You go, you you put it on, and you go in this elevator. You go up to the top floor, and the door opens, and you're at the top of a skyscraper, and there is a plank in front mm. of you. And I can look down at my nose, and I can see the floor. I can see the fucking floor, and then I look forward, and I step onto the plank. And I'm on a plank, like 40 floors up, looking down at the fucking ground. And it is, I shit myself. And I can't jump off it. My kids just walk off the end. I'm like, yeah. I cannot do no it. No way. I can't fucking do uh-huh. it. It is, it is interesting. Yeah. I, uh, like a couple of days ago, I posted a thing on Instagram. I was down at the beach and in, in Puerto Rico, it's so friggin' beautiful. The, the beaches and the ocean. And I was down there surfing and I was like, you park in like the jungle, but you're like right on the beach. And I had like a little film and I just said like, I'm never going to live in the metaverse. 
Like, dude, look at this. Like, really? Like, I'm going to go jump in the ocean and surf? Like, never live in the metaverse. But if you live in Mumbai, in a shanty, or something like that in Africa, maybe you do want to live in the metaverse. Or if you're 15 years old and you live in Bedford and you got home from school and it's fucking cold, yeah. and you go up into your bedroom and suddenly you're in real Fortnite, running around with a gun, shooting people. I hate to think of the, you know, like the, the like that movie Ready Player One, like... Um, Someone who could spend thousands of hours in a game building out this life in a game. Like, why not just go spend the thousand hours in the real world to build out the life that you want? Because it's less work. It's uh, most of the world's built out for you. In, in this real world, you have to go out and you have to get a job. And yeah. You have to start with that shit job, waiting tables or hammering ha- uh, handles and umbrellas like I fucking did. And you have to learn skills and work your way up and it takes years. Someone's takes, still going to have to do all that. Yeah, but like somebody's going to do that as their job and build that world and you just walk straight into it and you're a racing car driver. And you get to you get to drive a racing car at Silverstone. Yeah. So suddenly you're the best. And yeah. My my biggest worry with it, Mark, is the there's two worries I have. Mental health stuff, obviously, but people who so fucking love it in that world, they don't want to come out. They don't want to come out of that world. Yeah. And, and then you can see the whole matrix and say, "Well, don't come out. We'll just plug this thing in. Yeah. We'll collect we'll, we'll collect power off you to power the metaverse." Well, also in today's day and age, where people want to be bi, trans, whatever. I don't know. Um, and so there they can be whatever they can be an avatar they can be a zombie or they can be a animal or they can be whatever so i guess a lot of people want to be that right? maybe that's good for them maybe i i i know i'll sound like a boomer or whatever like a like a you know like every generation thinks their kids music's horrible and what they're into is horrible right but i think it's also because it is getting worse no it is music's terrible now right so i think uh, it it Every parent, uh, every generation has thought their kids' music and movies are, is worse, but I think it's because it is. No, it is. It's yeah. definitely worse. When, yeah. when was the last album? What's the last album you heard? You think, you know, in ten years' time, that'll that'll make the top hundred albums of all time. Yeah. Well, There's, you don't get it. You go to those top hundred albums of all time, and it's still Guns N' Roses. It's still Rolling Stones. It's still Led Zeppelin. I think the last great, truly great album was uh, Amy Winehouse's. I don't think we've had a truly great album since. The other day I was in the gym and I was, um, I had some old music came up and it was, uh, I actually thought about you. I was going to ping you on Twitter on it. It was uh, Ride the Lightning. And it was, it was the intro. And I just, the intro was so good to the song. And I was like, is this the best intro to a song there's ever been? You know? Um, But I I saw something. I, I, I challenge you. The intro to Holy Wars Punishment Jew by Megadeth. That's better. Yeah, it's a special. I'll play you in a minute. Yeah. Dave Mustaine. Dave Mustaine. He was yeah. pretty good. Um, I saw this chart and it showed, um, it, it, they mapped out music and they had like the beats and the melodies and, and they showed how um, over the, over the um, decades, how it started to like centralize and you've had like almost all the songs are now follow the same beat and melody and you don't have the variety that you have before. I don't I don't know if you've seen something like that, but I think auto tune has a lot to answer for as well. Probably there is hope. My daughter sent me. I'll show you in a bit. My daughter sent me a message the other day. She's like eleven. She messages me and she's listening to Biohazard, which is like this band I grew up on, like New York Brooklyn hardcore band. She's yeah. listening to that, so we have we have some hope. Wow, wow, yeah. So yeah, so I don't know. Where, I don't know where the metaverse fits into this. I think um, what is interesting though is I think. Um, I mean, we can get into this a little bit later when we go, where does all this go? Yeah. I, think, I think I have a time plan, timeline of kind of what the next decade looks like. But I think um, AI and Bitcoin sit on opposite spectrums. 
So AI is the, the central planners hope, I think that AI will give them the tools they need to um, manage an economy in absence of a free market. And AI is central control, right? Social credit score, all that. And I think Bitcoin is the opposite of that. So you mentioned the, the metaverse and AI, and I think it's, um, I think it's an opposite. I don't think the, AI, the metaverse is going to be stopped. I mean, it's definitely going to be, it's going to be big, hmm. unfortunately. Okay, let's talk about financial cycles, yeah. the third one. So as we were saying, um, each technological revolution creates the financial cycle. Because it creates the innovation, the reason to invest, the boom. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So new technologies like an iPhone or Uber um, will kind of extend an economy, but a technological revolution changes the economy, changes everything, changes humanity, the, the way humanity works. And I think um, this, this I kind of go into like uh, Ray Dalio's kind of like uh, credit cycle, you know, 80-year credit cycle there. And um, you just look at the way I – th- I think it's pretty evident to see that the financial system is on the rocks. I mean you talk to Len Alden and, and those people all the time. So, um, you know, we don't need to go super deep into that. But I think it's, it's, it's easy to see that the central banks are driving the economy obviously and they have two tools. So one is interest rates and two is monetary supply. Interest rates are at zero or negative in most of the world. So that tool's gone. So they have money. And we have over $300 trillion worth of debt they've created in 50 years. So that's pretty much done. And if you and I were playing a game, a board game, and you were out of moves, what do you do? You've lost. Well, you, res- you reset the game. Well, okay. Ah, uh, the, the great reset. I mean, you reset the game, right? What else are you going to do? You're making all the conspiracies converge. As well with this. Well, I don't know. A little what, bit. I don't know what conspiracy. I don't know what conspiracies we have. I mean, well, maybe their truth and not conspiracies. But. Well, I think um, you have. Um, I mean, <laughs> Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum wrote a book called "COVID Nineteen: The Great Reset." So it's not really a conspiracy. He wrote. He wrote a book. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read it. I have. Uh, he also wrote a book called "The Fourth Industrial Revolution." And I've read it, and you should read it too. <laughs> I take these people at their word. Okay. Um, you've seen him all over TV saying, we need to take this opportunity to have a great reset. I mean, that's what he said. It's not really a conspiracy. Um, and, and, and to go on with that, um, these happen on 80-year cycles. So 80 years ago was the Bretton Woods Agreement. And the Bretton Woods Agreement was what? The entire financial system was reset. We went on to a, a global monetary standard, a gold standard, right? The U.S. was pegged to, the, uh, to gold and all the currencies were pegged to the dollar. So the whole world agreed to change the monetary system 80 years ago. And today, well, not today, but a few months ago, six months ago, Kristalina uh, from the IMF says, we need to have a Bretton Woods II moment. Well, we're having it with Bitcoin. Right. But she's saying that we need a Bretton Woods 2, which of course Bretton Woods 1 is when the whole world changed. And so um, you call it a conspiracy. Klaus Schwab wrote the book, The Great Reset. She's calling for a Bretton Woods 2 moment. Um, When you're out of moves, you kind of have to reset the game. And it just kind of is what it is. And I think it's led to a point where a lot of people are starting to go, well, what comes next? Yeah. Does the dollar remain the reserve currency of the world? A lot of people argue that. Brent Johnson, dollar milkshake theory. The dollar is going to soak up all the liquidity of all the other currencies. Um, and maybe it will. Um, so will the dollar remain the reserve currency? Will we go back to a gold standard? A lot of people think that you know when the currencies are destroyed, they'll have to bring back some gold. Um, a lot of people think that the IMF, we're going to start using their SDRs. 
and we'll probably have the SDR um, central bank digital currency. I, I kind of think that that's possible. Um, we can talk about those different things, but I think what they're all looking for is a centralized, centralized solution and an answer. Yeah. yeah. So, but the future isn't centralized because of the cycles are all saying and we're the, at peak and, centralization and the technology that we have. And people are rejecting this. People are rejecting centralization and we have technology now to help us move away from that. <laughs> and so what happens is you, I believe, have already changed your reserve to a Bitcoin standard. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm on a Bitcoin right? standard and I, I, I talked I, about this yesterday. I, I've changed to a Bitcoin standard. Michael Saylor's changed to a Bitcoin standard. El Salvador's changed to a Bitcoin standard. So, like, it's already happening on a decentralized level. Yes, because a, uh, the gold standard required nations to be on the gold standard. Right. So it was centralized. But the great thing about Bitcoin standard, I can be on a Bitcoin standard. You can. Jeremy can. Danny can. Us four can be. Everyone else in the street doesn't have to be because it's personal, because it's all about the decisions we make. I, I literally explained it as... <laughs> Uh, to Brandon, uh, uh, Brandon Quidham yesterday, I said, the, the, the time I knew I was on a Bitcoin standard wasn't, I thought I was, right? I thought I was on a Bitcoin standard because I owned a lot of Bitcoin. Right. The moment I realized I was on a Bitcoin standard was that I'm trying to buy a new house, right? I'm repeating what I said to Brandon, but historically, buying a new house, what's the shortest mortgage I can afford? What's the highest deposit I can pay and can still get the lowest interest rate? Right. It's not now. What's the lowest deposit I can pay? What's the longest mortgage I can get with the lowest yeah. interest rate? Because I want to give them as little money as possible because I want to keep everything in fucking Bitcoin. Yeah. And the minute I, the minute I started looking at it, I was like, I am on a Bitcoin standard because I know my Bitcoin on that long time frame of a mortgage is worth, it's going to be worth more and accumulate value more and I can trust more yeah. than on a fiat standard. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm buying that place in Texas as well. So I'm doing the same thing right now. We're in escrow. And I was just looking at like, if I put this much down, my rate's this. But if I put this much down, and that's like, I want the lowest rate. So I'd like to buy it down. But like, I'd rather just have the Bitcoin. But that's the point of yeah. it. Like, I, I realize of a Bitcoin standard, it doesn't require you to have all your money in Bitcoin and have a credit card that you can use that like converts your Bitcoin to pay at the same time. A Bitcoin standard is the point where you realize how you're going to make your purchases. Right. Yeah. And how you, you know, how you store your wealth, right? Yeah. And, and all that. So I think um, everyone's looking for this centralized answer. CBDCs. CBDCs. And, 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 uh, and they're certainly going to continue to do that. Um, but the future's decentralized. And so one by one, we're all switching our standard over. And like I said, we, we're seeing corporations do it. We're seeing nations do it as well. Hmm. And I think, you know, what's important to understand, too, is uh, kind of like we were talking about earlier where we kind of have this gamble economy, right? This gamble. Everyone's gambling these days. And, um, you know, the uh, wealth of a nation has changed throughout history, right? And so, obviously, the UK used to be the, the world leader and the US has kind of taken that role over. Um, and every, every few hundred years, it, it shifts. But what's the wealth of a nation, right? Wealth isn't money. Wealth, like if, if you and I were on a, on, a, on a deserted island and we had a billion dollars of cash or a billion dollars worth of gold, this is P for Peter Schiff, if we had a billion dollars of gold, he says it has intrinsic value. Where is he? Yeah, where's the picture? Where the fuck is he? <laughs> Get him, Danny. He's in my bag. He's where's, in the front. Where's the picture of Peter Schiff? Fuck, so, we forgot him. So he argues intrinsic value, but there is no such thing as intrinsic value. 
And the reason why we can say that is because if we were on a deserted island with a with a billion dollars of gold, there he is, Peter. Sorry, sorry, Peter. Sorry, oh man, I miss you, dude. A billion dollars of gold or a billion dollars of cash, but we had no boat or no phone or no food or no water. Like that, that money, the cash or the gold is worthless, right? It's worth nothing because we have no goods or services to spend it on. If there was a guy with a coconut stand, he would be rich, right? Um, last night I had dinner and my leftovers that got thrown away. I didn't care for those leftovers. They were worth nothing to me. But if I was on a deserted island, I would give every penny I had for those leftovers, right? So all value is subjective. And so wealth is goods and services. And so the United States used to create goods and services. Gave it out to everyone else. Right? We don't have any goods and services anymore. And so there's no wealth here. And so everything's being shifted. The whole world, the power balance is, is being shifted. And um, I think it's easy to see, like I said, the, the, the games of the central banks are pretty much over. They have two tools. One of them's gone. The other one's pretty much gone, right? Um, we know that it's ready to be reset. They're calling for a reset. We have the IMF calling for Bretton Woods too. And left to its own, it's crumbling. Like it can't go on much longer. And uh, I just like to think of the Nietzsche quote that says, that which is falling shall ye also push. And I think Bitcoin's doing the pushing. So the wealth is in China because it has the productivity. They have the productivity, but they don't have the, the education or the creativity to build the wealth. No, because they steal everything from everyone they else, steal the motherfuckers. China's in, China's in bad shape. Yeah, China has massive amounts of debt. We talked about the populism uprising that they're trying to squash right now. There have been a massive energy crisis going on. Uh-huh. Um, China's in bad shape. Um, they've, they've really expanded doing this whole Belt and Road Initiative, which a lot of people are really worried about. But that's backfiring on them big time. And Europe's just announced their competitor to the Belt and Road Initiative. Oh, really? Came, yeah, it came out this week. So, and, and a lot of these countries where China has done these, uh, it's like the, what was that book? Uh, Confessions of the Economic Hitman, yeah. right? So they're going in and loaning money and they're taking over assets. But some of these countries are like, uh-uh, F you. You ain't taking nothing over. Get out of here. <laughs> and like China's being told to kick rocks. And uh, it, I think there's a lot of international backlash against them. I, uh, it's interesting to see if we want to like kind of project this out. Like, does China have enough momentum to take over? Or are they going to crumble before they get the chance? I'm probably leaning more towards they crumble before they get the chance to take over. All roads lead to Bitcoin. I think all cycles lead to Bitcoin. All cycles, all these cycles have led to Bitcoin now. So the question is, is that it's not inevitable that we come out of this how we hope. Like I see your vision, I see your solution, I see your answer, it's Bitcoin. It's decentralization, it's Bitcoin. But we have a tool and we have a chance. So what do we do, Mark? Yeah. So I think we're uh, back to kind of where we started, where I think that we are facing the battle for the fate of humanity. That's a show title there. And and I'm being serious. And I know that's uh, hyperbolic or whatever, but I think we're, we're facing the battle for the fate of humanity. And so either... We're going to be locked down and we're going to be censored and we're going to be separated and they're going to change our social media feeds to train our brains and shut down the information and prevent us from ever uprising again. And the cycles are broken. And my kids and my grandkids and your kids and grandkids are going to just live in the matrix for the rest of humanity. As long as they're good little kids, you know, they'll kind of be okay. 
Or we win. Or we win. And if we win, we also win for the rest of humanity. Because if we can take away the money printer, if you remember like in Star Wars, the original Star Wars, they're fighting back against the Empire and they have the Death Star. Yep. And when they went in to attack the Death Star, there was one spot on the top that they had to get in. If they could get that one spot. Down in the valley. Down in the valley, they could get the one spot, then the Death Star falls apart and the whole Empire crumbles. That one spot, that's the money printer. That's the one spot, the money printer. If we can take that, the whole Empire crumbles. The resistance wins. And so once, and once that's taken away, it's over. Money printer's gone. Money, as we, as we know it, is forever changed. And I think the cycles break the other way. Um, they, don't, they don't have the money to go create endless wars and endless prisons and, and tools to enslave us anymore. Um, big government, as we know it, is over. The end of the giant nation state is over. I think the sovereign individual thesis um, finally plays out. And I'm hope, I believe that's what happens. I believe history tells us that. I believe history tells us that humans drive for freedom always wins. Um, the history of always winning the revolution, I think, shows out. I think we have the tool to do it. Um, I don't think AI is near as advanced or will be near as advanced as they need it to be to win in the short enough period of time. Uh, I think we have, a, we have too much of a head start. They're, they're crumbling at a, fa- at, a, at, a, at, a, at a pace that's too – they're crumbling too fast and Bitcoin's growing too fast. And AI is not going to be there for them. It's not anywhere where it needs to be. Um, I would, in my timeline, I see probably the next three to four years probably getting worse, probably more control. Uh, what does that mean? That means um, less choice. That means less travel. That means more restrictions. That means um, probably more, you know, uprisings, more, populist, protests, more protests, more revolutions, a lot of that. I think um, going back, if you study, you know, the revolutions, I think... I'm hopeful, maybe optimistically hopeful, uh, naively hopeful. I don't know if it's a shooting war. I think it's a war that's fought over information and money. And we got memes and we got Bitcoin. And they got, they got nothing. I'll tell you what, man. This, uh, this is going to have a really profound effect on me, this interview. Um, I think there is a part two to this we need to do because I think we need to talk about, I want to get into your head about how we win. Something I've thought a lot about. Yeah, but I think that's a separate, another monster. Maybe I'll come to you next time. Yeah, maybe I'll be in Texas. Maybe I'm in Texas. I'm actually sharing a stage with Ron Paul in January. Hell yeah. So in Texas. So I'm going to... I'm working on a big piece of this that's going to go into that. You should turn this into a book. I, I would fucking buy it. I would read it. I would finance it. This needs to be a book because this is a book I would read. I, uh, I've actually been talking to uh, a company to put, put it into a book. I, I agree it does need to be a book. This needs to be a book, like there's, without fucking doubt. This is a – you need to do this, dude. There's so much data and charts and facts that I, you know, we, can't, we can't go through here. Oh. Um, yeah, it could easily be a book. And I've, uh, the guy who wrote The Pendulum, which I referenced, which is an amazing book, I've already been talking to him about helping me get it, help me get it done. So I just got to pull the trigger. Well, anything I can ever do, let me know. You have a permanent open invite to come on and talk about it here whenever. There's like, I've done 450 interviews. And there's shit ones, there's some good ones, there's incredible ones. There's ones that have been like 
real that have a profound effect on me. This is one of those moments where I'm like, I'm I'm kind of like lost for words and things I want to think about. Like I need to go back and watch your presentations. I probably need to re-listen to this. It's making me rethink my role in helping to make this happen. And like there will be people that listen to this, Mark, who'll be like, really? A battle for the fate of humanity? And there's going to be other people that are going to go, yes, it fucking is. Um, I don't want to be wrong on the wrong... I don't want to be wrong on the wrong side of this. So... I, I would just say, like I, like I said, I, I take them at their word. Hmm. Mark Carney wrote a book called Values. It came out this year. Go read it. I'm going to Mark read Carney, this. Mark Carney, I mean, you know who Mark Carney is. Most yeah. people don't. Head of the Bank of England, head of the Bank of Canada, uh, on, special envoy to the UN with climate and, um, and finance, uh, special advisor to the World Economic Forum, special advisor to uh, Boris Johnson and um, um, Trudeau in Canada. I mean, he's arguably the most influential guy in the world. Mm-hmm. Read his freaking book. See what he has to say. Like, I take these people at their word. Um, Klaus Schwab wrote a book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution. He believes that um, transhumanism, that you don't know the difference where man and machine come together. And I know it sounds conspiratorial, but these are the guys that are writing policy and they're the ones, and they wrote the book to tell you what they're doing. I need your book list. You need to send me the book list. Yeah, so uh-huh. we, we can do that. But I think back to, back to your point, rethink what you're doing. I keep going back to think about what James Madison said, which is... Um, Lighting brush fires, small brush fires in the minds of men. And you're doing it. We're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I said the war is going to be won over information and money. And you're providing information and information on money. So I think it's an active role, but I, I take it seriously, you know. Um, hmm. The thing with, the thing with if you know, we want to get into NFTs and, and, and all these things and, and metaverse and like. That's so know, irrelevant really to to what we're talking about because like all these people like no you don't know how much money i made i'm like we're not the same we're here it's not how much money you make it's whether you've separated that money from the state and you know it was really a big kick in the pants for me was about um i think it was march of this year i was in mexico driving in my truck listening to a podcast and um i i was just thinking about how bad things are and um and i was just like am i focusing on the bad things or am i actively building the world that I want to see, right? And then I was just like, no, I'm not. And I was at that point, I just said, you know, at this point, I'm just going to, the rest of my career, dedicated to make sure this doesn't happen. If there's anything I can do to make sure the 2030 agenda doesn't happen, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm in, brother. I'm fucking in. (laughs) Okay, listen, um, we're going to do a follow-up because I'm, and I want to plan it in advance with you. I want to talk about how we make it not happen. I want to do that one with you. Um, tell people where to go. Uh, we'll put as much as we can in the show notes. Tell people where to go. Yeah, man. Uh, so I do, I do a couple of YouTube videos a week where I kind of break stuff down. Um, have this really cool touchboard, uh, touchscreen whiteboard. Um, so just search Mark Moss on, on YouTube. Um, and then I have, uh, I have a new radio show on iHeartRadio. So I do radio show once a week and then I have podcasts on iHeartRadio as well. So you can just search Mark Moss on that. You'll find my, my, my podcast there. And then I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter, too, too active on Twitter, unfortunately. All of us. Man, sometimes I just got to delete that app, but I love it so much. But, uh, or maybe they'll push us off soon enough. But just uh, number one Mark Moss on Twitter. Thank you so much for coming and doing this. Look, it was well overdue, but maybe for a reason. Uh, yeah. Let's go and have a whiskey. Let's talk about this some more. Oh, we're going to have some, some fun. Let's go do it. All right, man. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, 
you want to reach out to me, the best thing to do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if you want to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Okay, see you all very, very soon. <laughs>